You are listening to Mike Seminary and Friends, a Q1 Network production. This may be the most fun I'm going to have and have had on a podcast of Mike Seminary and Friends because there's so many similarities between my guest and me, that it's, uh, I, I almost get giddy when I, when I think about some of the things we're probably going to talk about. You know, first of all, I've got an entrepreneur, a guy that uh, also was passionate about people that uh, were on, you know, down on their luck and helping them in the city he lives and then across the entire state of North Dakota. Uh, we're going to talk about music, which is something I just never get tired of. We were both drummers. He still is. He still has hair, by the way. So I don't know if we'll talk about that at all, because that's not a lot of value in that, frankly. And hair, from my perspective. So it is just a pleasure for me to say, Michael Carbone, welcome to Mike's Seminary and Friends. It's great to see you. How are you? I'm great, Mike. I, I... I'm really happy to be here, and I appreciate the invitation. Oh, it's it's this is going to be fun. There are so many similarities in our backgrounds that I'm not even sure where to start. Except, I think the most appropriate place to start is tell us first just a little bit about you. You know, we met when you were the executive director of the North Dakota Coalition for Homeless People. Prior to that, you were, I think, the executive director of the Fargo-Moorhead Coalition for Homeless People, if I'm saying that correctly. So we met when you were in that capacity, doing incredible work for people that desperately need help. How were you drawn to that career and that endeavor, uh, given your, your, your background in music, et cetera, et cetera? How did you get involved in that? Well, when I was younger, I was foolish enough to make my living in the world of masonry. And it uh, killed my back, killed my body. And I thought, I, I got to do something else. And I decided to go back to school. And I was sitting there trying to decide what my major should be. And my son, who was 11 or 12 at the time, looked at me and he said, well, dad, all you ever talk about is politics. You should go into political science. <laughs> so being a good father, I always listened to the advice of my 12-year-old son. And I enrolled at MSUM as a political science major and very interested in domestic and foreign policy. Not in politics as in going out and winning elections, but really in the policy end of it. Well, while I was in school, I was assigned a technical writing assignment for a class, which was um, just basically to write some sort of uh, study, feasibility study. Oh, and I, you could write one, according to the teacher, hypothetical or real world. And I uh, assigned myself a hypothetical study. Of course, we had to have the professor approve it, and she slammed her fist on the table. Little, little, little elderly woman 
English professor. Um, gosh, she must have been all of five two. She slammed her fist on the table on the desk and leaned over right in my face and said, no, um, you told me that, you know, you were interested in helping disadvantaged people because I had that idea in mind working in policy that I was going to work for policies that help people. She said, go out in the community and find a real world study that fits what you're interested in and then come back. So I called a friend of mine um, and he, he referred me to another guy and I ended up doing a feasibility study for the Fargo-Moorhead Coalition for Homeless People, Homeless Persons, they call theirs. Well, the study we were trying to determine, and is it something they had been discussing for a while, um, can we hire an executive director? What do we need to do to have the capacity to hire a director? And so I did a study for them about that topic, um, reached out to Sarasota, Florida, a town of about similar size to Fargo-Moorhead, and they had recently hired a, a director, and I, I surveyed them, and I surveyed all the members of the coalition, I surveyed people who were homeless, and I wrote a study and basically said, yes, um, it would be wise to hire a director, it would be possible to hire a director, but here are some obstacles you need to overcome first. Um, they accepted the study and gave me a nice thank you, actually a round of applause. You know, um, I think volunteer on that scale is kind of rare sometimes. Mm -hmm. And then they said, well, you're going to join the coalition, aren't you? You're going to continue to be a member. And I said, well, sure. And after two months of that and nobody ever mentioning the study again, um, I was approached to join the board of directors, which I did. And during the time I served on the board, I worked at a housing program that Lakes and Prairies Community Action in Moorhead had, helping people, you know, with first month's rents and deposits and eviction notices and, and that kind of thing. Well, all that time while I worked at that job and, and served on the board, we worked to overcome the obstacles that I had identified. And some of those were, you know, things like formalizing the 501c3 and uh, raising some funds and a few things like that. And they, we got all that accomplished and we voted at one of the meetings um, to start a search. And I immediately told them I would not participate in the search committee and that I was stepping down from the board because I intended to apply for the executive director job. And I got it. So I created <laughs> my, my, my first uh, job of that nature. Um, and we did we did some really good things. I mean, the organization without the, you know, the, the workhorse of a director and the, the guidance of, of someone and a day-to-day -day face for the media and so on. Um, it, it made a big, big difference. And so after a year of that, I got a call from 
well, this person will remain nameless, but they're a, a city official in Fargo who at that time was very concerned about resources um, for housing, for low-income people, and so on. And this person uh, reached out to me and said, we need you to go to Bismarck and take that job down there. And I, I really had no inclination of going to work in Bismarck, but my sense of responsibility and sort of gratitude towards the people that got me as far as I was, uh, made me decide to apply for that. And I, and I got that one and I did that for about nine years. Um, and the statewide opportunity was great in the scope of things. Um, I mean, I, that was during the height of the oil boom. Well, it was actually, I started before the oil boom began, but the oil boom and the big housing crisis that North Dakota had throughout the state, people associated with Western North Dakota, but it was from one end of the state to the other. Yeah. occurred under under my watch and it really gave me a chance to work on policy at the state level, at the federal level, and at local levels all across North Dakota. At the same time as I was advocating for good policy on behalf of people who were homeless and, and in poverty, I was also enforcing HUD grant rules and so on, which are sometimes counterproductive to good policy. <laughs> so I, I, I felt really torn in my duties at that job. And there were many, many challenges. Um, some of them were with people, you know, I, I oversaw almost three dozen grants. And so people not using grant money, right. Um, things like that. And I would have to be the enforcer and that's the part of that job. I, I didn't really like, but I did like getting people on track. So they were doing the work properly, but the, the statewide planning on homelessness and being part of the national network, I, I worked with the national low income housing coalition as a member and frequently went to Washington and would advocate policy. And North Dakota was key at that time because we had Heidi Heitkamp and John Hoven in the Senate. And Heidi was on the budget committee and Senator Hoven was on the banking committee. And both those committees were key in housing policy and so on. So I got to be kind of a, a liaison um, between many of the senators um, using our senators and their positions as sort of a, a way to get doors open and, and foster some cooperation. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I did that for, for that period of time. And like I say, there were a lot of sleepless nights and I, I kind of missed the direct service. You know, I'm I was dealing with a lot of service providers and not with people who were homeless. Although when my phone rang and it was a homeless person, they always got priority. Um, and then, as you know, Mike, um, not all the actors in the nonprofit world are good actors. Um, and so ran into some challenges, some challenges that you and I tried to face together. And, and yeah. uh, uh, we won't go into a lot of detail there, but that, you know, 
for a while, we were just cruising on getting things done, raising money, uh, getting policies passed. And, you know, one uh, major bad actor can kind of upset the whole card for everybody. Yeah. You know, I'll, uh, uh, by the way, thank you for all the work that you did, Michael. And it, um, with regards to bad actors in nonprofit world, you know, it's, there's bad actors in every Everywhere. segment, right? Exactly. Uh, but for some reason, they kind of get a little bit more attention maybe in the nonprofit world. I'm not sure. Uh, but you did a great job. And it's one of those areas that are critically important to every community. Um, sadly, we'll probably always be dealing with it just because of the nature of decisions people make mm -hmm. and decisions other people make for other people. Mm -hmm. But you did a, a great job. I, I got to stop for a second because I just realized you said you were at Moorhead State. Well, Michael, you started at UND, right? Yeah. I started at UND. I left UND. You, you never graduated from UND, or did you? No, I did not. No, I left. But you graduated from Moorhead State. Yes. So did I. Yeah, there we go. What? I don't know if we have to talk about anything else. I think this podcast is over. Right. Yeah. <laughs> We've covered it all. <laughs> but let's start talking about music. Um, you grew up in Jamestown, North Dakota. Right. And during some of your informative years, one of the country's legendary music stores was in James, started in Jamestown, North Dakota. Marguerite's. Yes. And you're rapidly becoming something very similar to that. You're, we're going to talk more about your story in a minute, but tell, walk me through how you got exposed to music. Why did you become a drummer? And um, what influence did Marguerite's have on some of the decisions you made with regards to your musical preferences and the instruments you wanted to play? Sure. That, what a great question, Mike. Um, yeah, Marguerite started in Jamestown. It was actually when it, when she first opened the store, it was a sheet music store in the basement of a greeting card store. And so to become one of the largest music stores in the United States, it was quite an accomplishment. Um, those who know Marguerite and I didn't know her well, but I have many friends who did and who worked for her. I mean, she was a, a, a retail genius, marketing genius, um, customer service. I mean, the whole bit. Um, I think she would probably, I mean, she's passed now, but I think her, her company would still be alive if she had embraced the internet when the internet came around. Because she had the reputation, she had the inventory, she had the showroom, she had everything but an internet presence. And my understanding is that she didn't embrace that, and that's what led to her her gradual um, decline and, and demise in the in the retail world. But she in Jamestown very quickly became a full service music store, very quickly, and moved to a, a big location down on the south end of town. And uh, 
gosh, if I walked home from school, I had to walk right past her showroom. <laughs> and big windows full of drums and guitars and everything. Um, I mean, that was really attractive to a lot of young Jamestown people. And in fact, if you were to survey the musicians in Fargo-Moorhead, in Bismarck, Mandan, and other places, those who are of the age that they started to learn when Marguerite's was open, you'll find a high proportion of kids who originated in Jamestown working in the music world. And I attribute that to Marguerite. I was in love with music from a young, young age. Um, my mom was a classical and jazz pianist and played in piano bars in St. Louis and so on during her college, college years and played at home, didn't go out and play, you know, once she was out of school, but uh, was very good. And I got exposed to a big world of music as a kid because my dad was a opera fan, classical music. My mom was classical and, and jazz. Um, I had an older brother who uh, had the same Marguerite's experience as I did. And he was learning, you know, Hank Williams and Buck Owens and Johnny Cash and that kind of thing. Well, I started with piano, you know, and I've done guitar and bass and, and keys and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But drums is what really captures me. And a, a lot of people who aren't drummers don't really understand drumming. They don't understand that drumming is not just rhythmic. It's also melodic, that the drummer actually drives the band and doesn't follow the band. Um, I mean, just so many things about drumming and and all of that just grabbed me right away I, I mean i i just loved it and i did marching band i did orchestra i did wind ensemble a, a garage band and uh, uh jamestown community orchestra and was in a working band that worked every weekend 50 we took two week two weekends off two weeks off a year but i was working from a very young age, 50 weeks a year, out playing gigs. A rock and roll and band? What's that? A rock and roll band? No, it was more of a pop, top 40 um, lounge act type thing, older okay. musicians. I was the only young, young guy in there. Okay. I had a rock band that I was a member of, and we worked a little bit, but not, not much. But these guys were... Um, Playing in Montana, North Dakota, Minnesota, South Dakota, and we were doing Elks clubs and and uh, you know just the typical lounge thing, a lot of hotel bar gigs and stuff like that. Oh wow! Yeah, <laughs> that was, it was a lot of fun. Good, good, uh, good experience for me. Had to have a union card at fifteen. <laughs> yeah. And of course, it was not legal for me to be playing in most of the places we played. No, but they didn't care back then. But but, but now, hey, before I forget, I, I I should let folks know a a couple things about Marguerite's. There would be rock bands that are playing a concert in Minneapolis, mm -hmm. and they would send folks over to Jamestown. 
mm-hmm. to pick stuff up. That's how well-known nationwide Marguerite's was at one time. It was an absolute legendary store. It, yes. it wasn't just a North Dakota. It was a big, big deal. We we have merchandise in our store right now, which is drums only, but that have Marguerite stickers on them, used, used merchandise. <laughs> um, we buy used merchandise um, all over the place. And we were looking, I, not, it wasn't me personally, but Scott, my sales manager, was online on the Reverb platform looking at instruments one day, and he found a blue Ludwig Vistalite snare drum. Not, not a common drum and very desirable. And he was looking at it, and, you know, they had a couple dozen pictures of it. And we were quite intrigued by the drum for two reasons. One, it was located in a music store in Ukraine. And two, it had a Marguerite sticker on it. <laughs> you know, they, they use those stickers that are absolutely irremovable. Yep. And put on all the products that they sent out. So I, I saw a post on Facebook the other day. And well, I, I, I say the other day, it was probably a year ago. And I can't remember the band, but they were touring and they were from up around this area. And they said, yeah, I just pulled into our gig at New Mexico. Here's a picture of the house PA. Marguerite stickers. <laughs> So yeah, you're right. Self- she reached everywhere. And the everywhere. influence, the influence was, you know, on multiple levels. Yeah. Okay. So you, you, you have this wonderful influence from your, your parents. And at a fairly young age, you're performing. And, you know, for folks that don't do that, one thing you need to know if you get hooked performing, there's nothing that right. replaces. There's nothing that really replaces right. it. And 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 I can tell you the exact moment I got hooked performing. I mean, I was 12 years old, and I had been drumming for about three years, maybe four, and was not a great drummer. But for 12, I was a good drummer, and I was asleep in a lake cabin at leech lake minnesota my mom and dad were in walker and they went to a piano bar where a guy was playing the piano and back on the corner of the stage was an old 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 ludwig drum set and my mom being a mom says to the guy my son can play those my son can play those and he said well where is he well, he's back at the cabin. Go get him. So my parents, about 10, 30, 11 at night, came and woke me up. Said, come on, come on. You got to go play the drums. And I'm like, huh, what? Rubbing my eyes, you know. <laughs> and we got there, and it was just me and the piano player. And I'd playing these. I mean, I remember they were Ludwig drums, and I remember they were as old as my mom, <laughs> they, they were from the thirties or forties or something like that. They, but they were great. And, and I, I played them 
And I played with the guy for a set and a half. And I don't know what his pay arrangement was, but there was a tip jar on the stage. And at the end of the night, he gave me the entire contents of the tip jar, which was probably 20 bucks for a 12 year old kid back in the, you know, 1970, whatever. That was like, wow. And people were clapping. I had a couple of little old ladies kiss me, you know, and this piano player's like, hey, nice job, kid. Nice job. That was it. That was, that was it. it. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Hey, so you uh, started performing early. You still perform today. Yep. And today you have a, a blues band called the Blue Whaler? No. Yeah, yeah. the Blue Whalers. And it's W-A-I-L-E-R-S, although some promoters like to spell it like we're out killing blue whales or something. Right. But <laughs> the genre of blues is unique. It's not it's not for everyone. But you know what? Nope. Any genre isn't for any, everyone, right? How, how did you become uh, a blues fan? You know, it started with like Jimi Hendrix, Led Zeppelin, Rolling Stones. And those aren't blues bands, but they're all rooted in the blues and they've all played the blues. And I I liked, I I discovered that I liked music, rock music that was influenced by blues. I didn't really know that. I mean, I just knew what I liked. And I remember one day, looking through a stack of vinyl albums, trying to figure out what to buy. And I see this guy on the album cover and he's got long white hair, white skin, and he's skinny as a rail. And you know exactly who I'm talking about. Yep. And I bought my first Johnny Winter album without ever hearing him. I bought it because of the way he looked. And I thought, well, this guy's got to be out there, man. And then he, I mean, he, he rocked, but he was a blues guy and, and he really opened up my heart to the blues. And then through Johnny Winter, I discovered Muddy Waters because Johnny Winter and Muddy Waters played together a lot. And once you discover Muddy Waters, you discover Willie Dixon, you discover uh, Magic Slim, you discover Lightning Hopkins. I mean, it just goes on and on. Um, and I loved it all. Yeah. I mean, and, and I started to realize, well, yeah, there's blues that rocks, but there's Appalachian style blues. There's hill country blues. There's jazzy blues. It, it's a big variety. And it's not all just some sad guy singing in the corner about how his baby left him. You know, um, blues songs are usually three verses. First two verses present a problem. And the third verse presents a solution and it's usually humorous um oh my baby left me my baby left me what am i going to do oh it's okay because if she don't love me because her sister will you know that those (laughs) those those kinds of um experiences and and thoughts and ideas and it's it's uh it's just great the people who originated blues and are the real creators of it lived 
lose. Yeah. It's a lived experience. By the way, for our country Western fans, which is, you know, wonderful music, there's a real bond. There's a real connection between blues and country. Yes. It's 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 kind of the same thing, you know. My baby left me and took my pickup and my dog, but but, you know, I found her sister, whatever. It's kind of it's kind of the same thing. But by the way, before I forget, just like you, my mother was my greatest influence in terms of pursuing music. She was a singer, and she sang. She could sing jazz and blues. Uh, The first time I heard my mom sing other than in church as a kid, was for a fundraiser at our school. And I said to myself, man, my mom is really, really good. Really, really good. And then she would be performing over time with this great jazz player, uh, uh, Bodie Bodelson, who was just a wonderful pianist and so on and so forth. So, again, these similarities that we have. For me, by the way, it was John Mayo. But when sure. I heard John Mayo, I was right. hooked. I was absolutely hooked. Okay, so you, well, <clears throat> before you go go to the yeah. next one, I, I'm really happy and proud that my band has actually performed with John Mayo a couple times at really? the Heart of Blues Fest. Yeah, and not okay. not like we're his opening act. We're the first in the day, and he's the end of the day. Man, standing next to him backstage while he's getting ready to go on, and then watching that that absolute master—it's been some of the greatest moments of my of my life. Yeah, the song that hooked me right away, "Room to Move." I I I, I had to learn that, uh, and the rest is the rest is history. Yeah, Congo Square—that's a great one that he does. That yeah. I think Sonny Landreth wrote that, but I like the way John Mayall does it. So you retired. From an incredible vocation, uh, help helping uh, people in distress, and helping to improve communities and the environment for for all. And you opened up a store. I'm curious, when did you start thinking about opening up a store? And how long after you retired did you um, did you open Drummer's Journey? Okay. That's a good question. When I retired, I continued to do some consulting work and I, it would help people get right with HUD or um, do some capacity building and that that kind of thing. Um, ended up doing a lot of pro bono work, which a lot of consultants, when they're starting out, do that, you know. Um, and I just found that most of my clients were people who were trying to get themselves out of trouble, you know, some, some issue that they had worked themselves into with a grant. And my vision for being a consultant was more to help organizations achieve excellence. And there, there weren't a lot of takers for that to be, to be real frank. Um, and so I, I thought to myself, well, I'll just, you know, continue, but man, I need something a little more exciting too, you know? Um, and I had offices on the top floor of the black building in downtown Fargo for my consultant firm. And they did a complete remodel there. 
and tripled the rents and I, I didn't want to stay there. Um, and so I started looking for a place to move my office to. And I didn't really find a lot of office space that I really liked, but I, I could find retail space. And it just popped into my head one day. Well, you know, the town really needs a drum shop and I'd, I'd, I'd really enjoy that. And I can still consult. I still consult to this day, Mike. Um, but the drum store is like, it's seven days a week. We're open seven days a week. Um, it's really challenging. It still gives me the opportunity to do good things for other people. Um, we do, we're very involved in music education and, and supporting um, other stores actually that are in the music uh, business, but in just supporting um, young people really learning how to play. We've got 25 drum students in our store right now, approximately, and a, a great teaching facility. Um, and so I decided I would open a store, and that was in the summer of 2019 that I made the decision managed to get the remodel and the inventory and all that stuff done by mid-December, about a month or two behind schedule. I wanted to be open for the full Christmas season. But I got opened uh, in time and in Minnesota. <laughs> so December of 19, everybody start doing your math and so on. That was right before the mandatory COVID shutdown. So I opened the store and then had uh, somebody tell me, well, you, you can't be open right now. And so I'll confess, we, we, we did, we were closed every day. But if somebody called us up and wanted to buy some drum heads, we would meet them on the sidewalk and sell them the drum heads in front of the store. Um, and it was a little irritating to me because I had a store right next to me, which was deemed essential. And you could walk in there and buy a can of pop, and, and that's all you would need. They, they sold other things that were essential, you know, as a farm store. But the, it, it was really tough. And we had, um, you know, several months of being shut down, but we, we did get help from the state, too. So the state kind of worked on both ends of it, you know. Um, and I'm grateful for that. And we got through COVID. Part of what we had to do was step up our online presence. Um, I kind of had that in year two of my business plan that we would develop an online uh, store and and so on. Um, but we moved that up to year one, and that helped. That's that takes time to get that going too. So you know we were racing against time and and a lot of challenges, but things just gradually got better and gradually got better and bands got back out and got working again and schools opened up again and need music gear for schools and, and all these things just started to gradually come back and we just kept slugging away at it. And quite frankly, it, if it were just me trying to do this, I, I would have failed. Um, you got to have a good team. And no matter what, I mean, if you're running a statewide nonprofit or if you're 
running a retail store or if you're whatever it is, you a band, you got to have a good team. And I've got a great team. I've got a guy named Scott Lang. I've got another one named Trevor Pearson, um, Matt Tinjum, my son, Ryland, who got me into this mess in the first place, you know, <laughs> um, we, we all work here. Um, and everybody except my son, Ryland is a working drummer. In fact, the best drummers around this area. I mean, Scott and Matt are amazing, amazing drummers. Um, Trevor is also an amazing drummer and, and been in a, a band that, uh, I've known since he was in high school and then my son is a guitar player. And so he's, you know, we allow him to hang out as sort of the exception to the rule, <laughs> but we, uh, <laughs> we, you know, I've got firm ideas and firm policies on what the store's mission is and how it works and, and what we do. And I've got a great team that buys into that, that believes in what we're doing here and believes in drumming, believes in music, believes in music education. And Scott has got a wealth of product knowledge. From the time he was a kid, he was a gearhead. And I tell you, he, he, he really knows his stuff. And so with the dedication to customer service, the product knowledge, we've gotten a, a lot of uh, different brands and, and ranges of, of product in here. Um, that's what's propelling us down the road towards success. Um, I realized right away that not everybody wants to be Neil Peart and have a 30 piece drum set and some, you know, big thing and, and play prog rock and, and do that. There are church drummers. There are hobbyists that just play in their basement and record. There are drummers in all kinds of genres. There's a lot of jazz guys out there that just need a little bop kit, you know. There are hippies that want to play the djembe in the park, and that's what they want to do. So we named the store Drummer's Journey with the concept of Everybody who's learning an instrument, including drums, is on a journey. They're they're going somewhere. It's not just something you do one afternoon, and it's not like going to the zoo or something. You know, it's not a, a temporary activity. It's a it's a lifelong commitment. And so we're here to serve drummers of whatever kind on their journey, and it's been so rewarding. Um, I mean, I have experiences in the store that just make me go home in gratitude every night. Um, the other day, I had uh, a rep from Minel Symbol Company up from Nashville, and we spent the whole day together, and or the whole afternoon, I should say. And that while we were talking. A young guy came into the store, I'd say early 20s, and he walks up to me and he says, do you play the drums? And I said, yes, I do. And he said, and he looked at the other guy, Gabriel, and he said, do you play the drums? And Gabe said, yep, yep. And he said, well, you know, my, my dad was a drummer. He says, I don't know how to play the drums. He says, my dad was a drummer, and he was really, really good. 
gosh, I miss my dad. Mm. I just need somebody to play drums for me. This was like three days after Father's Day, two days after Father's Day. And I played drums for him. And Gabriel got on another kit and played, and we played together a little bit. And we let the guy try, and I was showed him how to do a boom, thwack, boom, boom, thwack. And, and uh, he, he gave me a fist bump and a big thank you. He gave Gabe a big fist bump and a thank you. And it looked like he was going to start to cry. Hmm. He said, man, thanks. He says, I'll be back. And he left. Well, I didn't sell that guy anything. But, man, he sure made my day. <laughs> I mean, I, it, you know, somebody comes and says, I, I need, I mean, basically what he said is I'm missing my dad and I need some comfort, yeah. you know, and we did it by, by drumming. I, I had another woman, young woman, again, early twenties, maybe 20, 19. I don't know. She came in and she was from Crookston and I approached her, you know, when you need anything today. And, and she said, well, I'm just looking around. She looks at me and she says, well, you're the guy that's sold me my electronic drums, aren't you? And I said, well, I don't know. I said, it might have been me or it could have been Scott. And she looked at me closer and said, no, it was you. And I said, oh, okay. And I, I still didn't quite remember her. And she started talking about this electronic drum set that she bought from me, which is, turns out to be one of our higher end, nicer drum sets. And... <clears throat> She talked about how much joy it brings her. She says, I didn't know how to play drums, but I always wanted to. And now I've got this. I can play in my apartment. I can do this. I can do that. And I play an hour or two every day, and I just love it. She says, it's, mm. it's changing my life. And then she mentioned she was playing standing up. And, she's, and I'm looking at her odd. She says, well, you didn't have any thrones when I bought my drum set, but you said you were getting some good thrones in soon. And I said, yeah. I said, man, thrones are tough. I said, we sell them as fast as we can get them. I said, but I have some nice thrones right now. And so we talked a little more, and she said to me, yeah, I got problems in my hips and blah, blah, blah. I said, well, you want a throne like this. And they make thrones for drummers with bad backs and that kind of stuff. I sat her down on that, and she says, yep, this is the throne I want. So she bought it. It was an expensive throne. It was about 250 bucks. So I'm ringing her up and she pulls out a checkbook and she says, yeah, I'm going to write a check. I've got ID. And I said, ah, now I remember you. When she bought her drum set, she wrote her very first check of her entire life by that drum set. And I said, ah, I, I do remember you. You, when you bought the drums, you used your first check ever. And she says, yeah. And she opens up her book and he shows me the duplicate, you know, like, oh, that's so awesome. You know? <laughs> so I sold her the throne. But what really made my day was her telling me how much starting to play drums was changing her life and her outlook on, on things and how much pleasure and joy she gets out of it. Um, we've got Matt Tinjum, our teacher, you know, Matt got an amazing, amazing drummer, probably the busiest drummer in Fargo-Moorhead. But, He's got kids that love him because of what he brings to them, that joy of music and the ability of learning how to play. And and he's got students from five up to 50 or 60. 
years old and different genres of music and and just seeing Matt's students come in and out and and uh, build up their arsenal of gear gradually and and their and their skills is 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 gratifying you know and then hardly a day goes by that I don't get somebody telling me oh yeah Scott man he's great he really helped me out man he really knows his stuff his service is is awesome and he's maybe not as visible of a drummer as Matt is but he's very visible he plays every weekend all over the upper Midwest here in a very successful country, new country band, rock band called October road. And so many, many of the listeners I'm sure have seen them or are aware of them. And so it's, it's, it's just great that we came from that. Oh my God, I'm going to try this thing. It's scary to, Oh man, now we've got COVID and we're shut down to actually having the, the wheels turning. And I talked with a rep from one of the largest uh, musical instrument and, and music um, printed music distributors in the world the other day. And we're customers of theirs. And I was asking him advice on starting a rental program. And he rattled off about half a dozen stores and said, prefaced it with, and the other stores in the country that are like you do this. And he named names. And after I got off the conversation with him, I said, other stores like yours who are, and he it was mentioning like Pro Drum in LA, Forks Drum Closet down in uh, uh, Nashville, and, and just uh, Portsmouth, you know, up in New England. And, and uh, I was like, you just put us in that category, and we've only been open three years, you know. I didn't say that to him, but that's what I'm thinking in, in, in my head that, God, we've made fast progress if, if big vendors are putting us on that list and we secured a DW dealership, which is hard to do. It's a big commitment and you've got to be a store that they want to work with. And we got that. And the other day, my DW dealer told me that, and that's high end USA made Gretsch as well and LP. And he told me you are absolutely one of my very best dealers in the entire Western United States. So when you hear that, Michael, what's the first thing that crosses your mind when, when you hear something like that? Well, I feel I get a few things that go into my mind. One is I feel as if the vision and the mission that I laid out is valid. It's validated at that point. You know, people are saying, we need you, we need this, that, you know. Um, and then I feel gratitude towards my team for helping me get there. You know, I had the vision. They share the vision. We're all doing the work together. But most importantly, I feel gratitude towards the people who come through our door and click on our website and ask us to help them. And we don't, I mean, there are stores and I, I could name some names. I'm not going to, but there are stores that have a policy of, 
If they think that you've got a thousand bucks to spend, they work hard to get 2000 out of you. That's no, let's fulfill the need and let's help the customer understand his need. And so we always start with a conversation, you know, but Hey, how's it going? At first it's just light, you know, Hey, how's it going? What's what you up to today? And then as you talk to people and, and they tell you what they want and what they need, and some people have preconceived notions that of what their needs are that aren't really what their needs are, and we help them figure that out. But we're never trying to upsell and, and get more out of you than, than what you intended. We, we like to work with people in their budget. And when we do an upsell on a, a drum set sale or something like that, it's like, Oh, sticks, drum key, books, little things. Yeah. And get them used to the idea that you're you're gonna need stuff as you go along. You know, you're gonna need to polish your cymbals or clean your drums, your your heads are gonna wear out, you're gonna need new heads and let them know that, that we're here for their entire drumming career. And I, I'm gonna say something to to uh tee you up to take a run on something because you probably would never say this. And and this message that I'm going to share is for policymakers that God forbid we ever have another COVID like experience. You need to understand how important music is. Yes. If the store next to Michael's was deemed essential, here's how much more essential a store like Michael's is. Music, which has been around in one form or another since we lived in caves. It's been around that long. Music says something when words aren't available. Music strikes responsive chords in every, well, I shouldn't say quite like that, virtually every human being on the planet. Music, particularly the four formative years of high school, you 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 play a song for somebody, even if they're 90, that was popular when they were in high school, there is immediate recall, like, mm-hmm. in, like nothing else almost, other than maybe the smell of wet grass, you know, uh, and the morning dew or something like that. Music is that that important. And by the way, here's how important drummers are. As a former drummer who played not very long because there was another drummer much better than me that we needed to get in the band, so I became the front guy. Without the drummer, you, you, you kind of don't have the pocket. And the pocket, it, it's hard to explain it unless you've been around it, is really created by the rhythm section. In most bands, that's the drummer, the percussionist, and and the bass player, typically. They're, they're, they're the ones that that make that whole thing hum. Music was so important during COVID. I can't remember how many videos I saw across the country, I, probably the world, but I just remember across the country, where musicians would set up about six, seven feet from other people on a city street and play. They, they, and then there were people, you know, six, seven feet separated out enjoying it because that's how important music is. It just says something 
when words fail or words aren't available. That's how important music music is, in my opinion. Michael, um, you have this incredible online presence. You've only been around uh, three years. COVID almost, I suppose, scared the crap out of you. Almost could have maybe put you out of business. I don't know. And, and you're, you're becoming this very well-known nationwide store because of uh, online presence. But you have this incredible in-store inventory and setup that just, uh, I was jaw-jacked. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. Why should people, why should people come in? And then those that, that are listening right now that are probably in Tallahassee, Florida, why should they go to the website drummersjourney.com? Speak to those two different types of people. Sure. Um, if you can stop into our store and you've got any inkling towards drums or any love of drums or anything, you, you'll be just delighted. You, you come into a, a wonderland when you come into our door. You know, we've got a big wall of snare drums. We've got drum sets to the right, drum sets to the left, cymbals, percussion, everything. We've got a beautiful, beautiful gong that we just got in. I mean, it's just, and we keep adding to the inventory because, well, for one, the drumming world is so big, and, and two, the the demand is there. And obviously there's things we don't want to stock too much of because the sales of that particular item are slow, but we're getting all that figured out and we know what to order and what to have and what, what people are, are looking for. There are day-to-day items that drummers need um, sticks, heads mostly. And we do the, the uh, grocery store thing with like they do with their milk and bread our sticks and heads are in the back of the store. So you got to walk past all the symbols and drums and everything. We're, we're trying to, trying to get your excitement going and so on. But a lot of what we do is just selling the guy a drum key because he lost his or selling the guy some sticks because we're out. That's, that's the day to day. Um, and then the drum sets, the symbols and, and other things. I mean, that's, it gets bigger and, and bigger and, and better and better. And you need to sell all of it. You can't focus on, Oh, I'm just going to be at a drumstick store. That wouldn't make any sense. But if you have drums and you don't have what drummers need to maintain their drums, well, you're not doing them a service either. If you come into our store to buy heads, we'll have several different varieties of heads on hand. But we'll have them in every size, every common drum set size. So you can do your whole drum set rather than like if you go into some of these stores, oh, you can get a replacement head for one Tom or or whatever. And then we try to have a whole culture of community, of music community, drumming community, and so on. We've got a stage set up for live performance. Uh, We've had like Todd Zuckerman from Sticks here. We've had Rich Redmond here um, from Jason Aldean. Matt, our teacher, has done uh, several clinics. We've got um, uh, John, uh, oh, Kenny Aronoff coming next. Hmm. And, you know, Kenny Aronoff 
it's played with everybody. He became famous uh, playing for John Mellencamp. But um, right now, well, not right now, but in the last month, he was touring Europe with Joe Satriani. And so he's a, a studio great and a, a drumming legend. So we're excited to have that. But so that's a, a reason to come in here. And you don't have to come in here and, and buy anything. Just come in here and play with a kalimba a little bit. Just, just because you're having a stressful day. Come in here and talk to Scott and, and, and learn, you know, learn about tuning drums or learn where his band's playing this weekend. Come in and talk to me and, and uh, I'll talk about anything, you know. Um, and so it's, it, yeah, we, we, we want to sell a lot of stuff, but mostly we want to create a community of artists of like mind and respect and, and, uh, then the rest of it will come on its own. And where's the store located? It's in the East 10 Mall in Moorhead, Minnesota. The East 10 Mall is on Highway 10. And we've got two anchors on either end of the mall. One is Runnings, the farm store that I was complaining about being open. Um, they they deserved to be open, but not not just so I could buy a bottle of pop, you know. And then on the other end, we've got uh, Cashwise Grocery Store. And we're two doors down from Cashwise right next to the China Buffet. And on the other side of us is a nail salon. And Starbucks across the parking lot. My last band had a really, really talented guys the lead guitar singer, amazingly talented guy who still plays to this day. One time I'm visiting with him. He said, you know, Mike, I've got gas. I thought, what the, what do you, what, what do you mean? Guitar acquisition mean. syndrome. Yeah. We call it then, gear acquisition. So I was going to ask you, do you have the same thing? Do you have, you have, oh, you oh have, yeah. Yeah. What do you call it? Gear acquisition syndrome. Gear acquisition syndrome. Yep. So, you know, you could buy a polishing cloth for your piano or you could buy a $8,000 set of DWs, you know. Oh, you, you know, you could also call it DeGas, drum yeah. gear acquisition syndrome. Hey, this guy's got go. DeGas. Yeah, it's DeGas, man. I'm going <laughs> to use that. <laughs> I'm going to use that, Mike. Yeah, here's how important drummers are. Michael and I were talking about this. Before we started recording, it's a well-known story. Mercy, I thought it was a rumor, but it's a fact. Rolling Stones, maybe, well, let's put it this way, in the top five greatest rock and roll bands of all time. And it, it, you've been around that long. You know, when your lead guitarist taught Willie Nelson how to play guitar when Willie was probably three or four, you've been around a long time. I know mean, those guys have been around. Yep. Well, there's a story about the Stones are partying somewhere, and Charlie Watts, who before he died, you know, he he was married to his wife since like 1964, 65. I mean, they were they were inseparable in some ways. He he wasn't necessarily a party animal like some rock and rollers, and Mick and the other guys are 
partying and somebody asks, where's, where's the drummer? So he calls him. He's up in his room sleeping. He calls me, says, where's my drummer? And as the story goes, Charlie Watts gets up, showers, and dresses. You know, because yeah. he was kind of a formal guy. He dressing. dressed very, very well. Yeah. He wasn't he walks a down, t-shirt guy. No. He walks down to the wherever their entertainment is, and he finds Mick. He walks across the room, and he punches him in the face. And he says, for the record, I'm not your drummer. You're my singer. And then he walks back to his room. I, that's how important drummers are. You put the lead singer in his place. Yep. Even if and it's they, Mick Jagger. They both verified that story as well. What else should folks know about you and drummer's journey, Michael? Well, there's something we haven't even mentioned yet that I'm really excited about. And this is going to be a big stretch for me and difficult, but one of my consulting clients that I worked with, and this is not someone who was in trouble with HUD, but actually is one of my clients that has reached for excellence, is an international NGO called AfroPD. And the founder, director, the, the spearhead of AfroPD is a man named Emmanuel Dore, who is from Guinea, Africa, um, has an amazing life story. This is like one of the most amazing people I've ever met in my life. And so I've been helping him for a number of years now. And we built a, like a 37-bed clinic in Kona Cree. We've done some feeding um, and some water projects in the rainforest and so on. Um, Guinea, Africa, the rainforest area in there, is the home of the djembe. The djembe is one of the most popular hand drums in in the music in, yeah. in the world today, in, in music. And Emmanuel went into the rainforest one day and met up with some djembe players and said, I need a djembe. I need a very nice djembe for a friend of mine. And he had a djembe handmade for me in the rainforest of Guinea and had my logo carved on it and the whole bit. And it's a, an amazing instrument. And I had the djembe for a, a short time. And I had a friend reach out to me and say, you know, we've got a men's choir that needs a couple hand drummers. And uh, I told him you and I would do it. And I said, okay, well, what, what are we doing? And he said, we're going to open for Foreigner up in the Alaris Center in Grand Forks. And we get to do one song. And it was Toto, Africa. <laughs> so I was able to take that djembe up, up to Grand Forks um, and open for Foreigner. With, with using that djembe, performing the song Africa. And to me, that was just so full circle. But that djembe is such a marvelous instrument. Um, I, I mean, the specific one. That it got my wheels turning again. And, and I said to my friend Emmanuel, well, can you get more of these? And he said, sure. How many do you want? <laughs> 
And he said, 300? And he said, sure. <laughs> and, I, and I said, well, okay, now we got to make a plan. Now we're back to feasibility study time again. <laughs> but we are working on importing djembes that would be imported by his company as a for-profit venture that would help feed his nonprofit. And I would take do the U.S. distribution under our name. And so we're working on trying to make this happen. And, and so I'm working on figuring out a lot of things like shipping containers and, you know, all kinds of stuff. But if we get these djembes, then part of it is that I, I've got a couple artists that I work with locally. It, it, we would get some of them as blank shells and have them finished by local artists, and some of them would be finished by artists in Africa. So we would have African djembes and African-American djembes. Um, that's kind of where our state of our thinking is right now. And I talked with some of the artists about would they be willing to do the art with a student? And so we, my hope would be that we would have students of the djembe creating their own special, unique, high-quality djembe with a local artist that came in that shell directly from Africa, blah, 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 and all that. So I got a lot of moving pieces here to where I can make this um, profitable for all of us and beneficial for for many and one of the things that we wanted to do and one of the things we've done already in in guinea is that emmanuel has has done is work against um female genital mutilation and we immediately ask those who are listening what does that have to do with drumming <laughs> well Emmanuel ha has got some nurses that work for him and, and uh, some very, very good, well-educated people. And they don't have any difficulty really convincing the uh, residents of the rainforest that FGM is a bad practice. But it's a, it's a thousands of year old tradition. Yeah. It's what they do. Um, the young women are extremely eager to say, no, I don't want this. Uh, a little more difficult are the older women practitioners who actually perform the procedure. Well, why? It's how they make their living. It's how they feed their families. It's how they feed themselves. And so Emmanuel, in his wisdom, realized early on that if you're going to get people to stop the practice and that's how they make their living. You have to give them an alternative income. Well, there's no electricity, but there's a big need for clothing. And so Emmanuel has started buying treadle sewing machines, the old fashioned foot pump sewing machines yeah. and setting the women up in, to, to make clothing. Well, if we're going to sell jambes and from Africa, they should come in their own kinte cloth uh, bag, djembe bag. And so we'll throw that work 
towards those women who have agreed to stop the, the practice. Michael, yeah. this is amazing. Yeah, well, you, you know, and I've been able to join my music world, my philanthropic world, my homeless world, all these things, they're all one to me. You know, it's like, how do we do something good? How do we do something nice for people? And how do we, and the rest of it takes care of itself if you keep keep your eye on the ball and go that direction and that it's a good direction. If you just do that, no matter what you're doing in life, yeah, there's going to be stumbling blocks and people who think you're nuts and people who work against you, but heck with all that. Just keep your eye on the ball and, and do good work towards a good cause. You know, when you fulfill this incredible opportunity, we should have you back on because that, that's really special. By the way, I thought you were going to say that Emmanuel came out of the rainforest with her djembe. It had a marguerite sticker on her. I thought for sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> you know, but Emmanuel actually comes from a fairly elite family in Guinea. But an elite family in Guinea is not very elite, you know. Um, and he, at a very young age, ended up in, I was going to say Liberia, but no, it was Sierra Leone. And there were about six or 7,000, maybe 8,000 um, refugees from Guinea in Sierra Leone. And they spoke six different languages. Emmanuel speaks eight or nine languages. Wow. But they, all these refugees spoke all their local languages. And they would have conflicts and, you know, they'd live in cloistered communities and there'd be conflicts and disputes and crimes and all kinds of stuff. And for the government of Sierra Leone, uh, uh, Emmanuel was a special envoy to Sierra Leone. He created a national arbitration system for Ghanaian nationals. And part of the way he was able to do that is he spoke every one of their languages. But he created the system and, and he won an award for that. And he was in his early 20s. Um, at that point, they had a revolution in Guinea, and he was declared person, persona non grata. And he was in Sierra Leone by himself with his family in Guinea. So he came to the United States and got his citizenship, um, started working on getting his family over, eventually became, you know, things changed, the dynamic changed. And he was welcomed back in the country and has been back many, many times since then. And um, it's, he's got two adopted children. One of them, he saw in Conakry when he was a very young man. And the child was about three. And he was naked and covered in feces wandering on the streets. Oh, geez. So Emmanuel, <laughs> Emmanuel hired another boy to wash him. And they got the boy washed up and then they found his mother. And the mother was sick and 
was, I mean, really, really struggling in, in deep, deep poverty and ill. And Emmanuel took care of her and that family until she passed away. And then she adopted the boys. He adopted the boys. That's the kind of guy this this guy is, and and I I just uh, I can't say enough you know praises for him. But so he's the kind of guy I wanted I want to do a, a a djembe business with and see if we can't fill his coffers and and uh, spread some musical joy here in the states and and um, and know that what's happening back in Guinea the Guinea Guinea carvers are getting paid. Mm-hmm you know, a substantial wage and the, and the women making the bags are, have work that is meaningful and feeds their families. You know, Michael, that's a great example of how, how, how one person can make a difference. And yeah. then when you team up with another one, how you can exponentially advance the difference that you can make that. Thanks for sharing that, that, uh, we do have to have a follow-up podcast to talk about that. I'm going to have to sit in with your band sometime and make some music together. For all of you that have DeGas or or you want to develop DeGas, you've never drummed. The place to go is Drummer's Journey. If you live, you know, fair distance from the Fargamore area, you can visit drummersjourney.com. It's an amazing store. It when I walked in, I was I said jaw jack. I was speechless. It was so so impressive. I'm really happy for you, Michael. I, and you're doing neat things. Congratulations on the success that you're achieving. It's it's well deserved. Thank your son because he yeah. had a role. By the way, thank the if you if you've kept track of the five foot two teacher. Who told you no? You, you got to go give me something else because that kind of was one of the evolutionary steps, right? Thank her too, and yes. thanks for thanks for joining. Hazel Retzlaff was her name. Hey, she was on staff when I was there. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> hey, Michael, thank you so much. Thanks for taking time to join me. Uh, best of luck. Uh, you're doing great things, and we got to have you back on when when it works. Okay. All right. Awesome, Mike. I appreciate you very much. You, you, you take care. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.